Hello and welcome to Commonplace Expertise. This podcast is about expertise in the real world and the people who have them. Today I'm talking to Colin Breyer, who joined Amazon really early in its life and spent 12 years as part of Amazon's senior leadership team. And the conversation we're going to have today will be mostly about operating, right? How do you operate well as a person who runs a business. For two of those years at Amazon, he was technical assistant to Jeff Bezos, otherwise known as Jeff's shadow, during which he spent every day attending meetings, traveling with and discussing business and life with Jeff. After Amazon, he and his family relocated to Singapore yay, for two years where Colin served as chief operating officer of e-commerce company Redmart, which was subsequently sold to Alibaba. Colin is co-founder of Working Backwards LLC, where he coaches executives at both large and early stage companies on how to implement the management practices developed at Amazon. So hi, Colin. Yeah. So I want to start this conversation with a brief overview of your story. I've listened to a whole number of podcasts with you and not many hosts ask you about your background before you joined Amazon and what it was like in those early days. I know you have a degree in operations research. How did that happen? Like, Where do you grow up? What made you decide on operations research and what led you to Amazon? Well, yes. So I grew up in Chicago. I was, ever since an early age, loved playing with computers, both hardware and software. Mostly software, though. My first computer was a TRS-80 color computer. It had a 4K of memory, (laughs) believe it or not. And I thought that was a lot. How could you use all that memory? But so, you know, I had just really written software and written games and educational software through grammar school and high school. And then when I went to college to study engineering, I wasn't really sure what type of engineering. Computer science was one option. And then I learned about this new major called operations research. And the more I looked at it, I also like math and computers. And I also had a good business economics background or sense to it. And I was just drawn more to operations research. I still was interested in computers to help me do things, but not to be the end goal. So that's how I ended up in engineering and in operations research. And after four years there, I stayed and got my master's in in OR too, and then started at a company called Oracle. They were about a billion dollar company then, so relatively small compared to what it is today. I worked there for about five years as a consultant, and I helped companies write software, you know, bespoke software on top of the Oracle database and integrate with their either back-end applications or some of Oracle's newer applications that were just coming out. And around 95, you know, just started noticing, well, this internet thing does have some legs to it and had that entrepreneurial itch. And so started a company with two other now ex-Oracle people. Our expertise was really helping companies unlock all of the data behind their firewall to either other businesses or consumers through the internet, which was a novel thing. No one really knew how to do it, including us. So we were helping to build some of that plumbing to make it happen and worked with companies here in the Northwest in Seattle, which is where I'm based. And I lived back then too. companies like Microsoft, Boeing, and then a small company called Amazon. And so we went over there and we were working with them and just realized that there was something special going on and we needed to be a part of it. And luckily they felt the same way too. So that's the long meandering journey of how I ended up at Amazon. And I started it early in 98. Amazon had just done $147 million in revenue the prior year. And we were just books. Uh, We had two, I won't call them fulfillment centers. They're more warehouses with bookshelves in them. So we were just shipping books. 
and it was shipping worldwide, but we just had a U.S. website. Wait, so just to give more context here, you were consulting for Amazon. At the time, this was 1998. So they started four years earlier. And at this point in time, they were still a very small company. What do you see in them that told you that there was something special going on here? Well, some of it was the data, actually, just looking at what customers were doing, the positive response, and then how fast it was growing. That was one part. Two, just working with the employees at that time, you know, could tell that there was really something special. And I could tell that Amazon got the internet more than some of these other companies uh, early on. You know, I just looked at their, their website and then their internal systems and say, now they really understand how you can unlock a lot of value for customers. So it was that triangulation mm-hmm. of those couple of things that just made me realize, hey, there's something special going on here. Didn't know whether it was going to work or not. To be quite honest, it was still a risky venture at that point in time. Most analysts were down on Amazon at that point in time. There were well-funded competitors, too, who were just getting into the Internet. So, you know, there's a fair amount of risk involved there, too. Wow. And when you joined, what was your first role? What was it like inside the company? I was a technical program manager. So we had, there were maybe five of us at the time, and we were running some of the large cross-functional projects at Amazon. So some of the ones that were going on at that time, we were starting to launch our first international sites outside of the U.S. So we had to work with internationalizing the code base oh, and just the, the operations in, in business. We were doing category expansion in music and DVD. It wasn't even video at that point. Where the DVD and VHS actually were, that was the format that people were using. And I ended up working on some of those, but also primarily in an area called affiliate marketing, which mm. was brand new at the time too. And that was something that was growing like a weed. I was, I'm big on network effects. And no one else was paying that much attention to it. And back then, if you raise your hand and say, hey, you think we should work on this? It's like, great, go hire a team and go make it work. So when I started, the building we were in was the last time the whole corporate of Amazon was in the same building. So it was just a small four-story building, about 50 people, I'd say, in the whole product wow. development group, including program managers, software engineers, and everything in between. Probably about 100 people in the corporate area. So you knew everyone. It was a small place. And then we had... About 500 people total. We had two fulfillment centers back then and a customer service right. center. Right. And we've talked over a period of months about the WBR, right? At this time when you joined, my understanding from you is that WBR hadn't been created yet, but there was still something called the analytics package. Could you talk a little about the data situation when you entered Amazon and what was it like? Were you swimming in data? Because in the book that you wrote much later called Working Backwards, you mentioned that all Amazon's leaders were swimming in data and so therefore you were able to make better decisions. But at the time when you joined, what was the situation like? Well, we didn't have many formal data systems. So the reason I was swimming in the data, you know, I had a database background so I could get any of the data <laughs> that I wanted and needed. And and then there were spreadsheets, daily emails being passed around with data. We didn't have a data warehouse back then. You know, still we're building one at the time. So really, I was lucky that wasn't afraid of any of the software tools to go in and get the data you need to get your job done. So where most of the data I use was really custom data where, hey, either based on we'd query logs and sometimes you would go basically re-engineer what happened on the website to go figure out, well, what do we do next? You know, what are customers? What's their click path going through? Or when there was a bug, how did it happen? Sometimes you had to go recreate that for forensic evidence by yourself through the query logs. So yeah, I would say that a lot of the tools that you take for granted today, they didn't exist back then. And so I think I had an advantage just because people who could go in and get that data just had more information. But 
But then there was also, we had a very strong finance team that would put together uh, an analytics package each week. And that was all bespoke effort too. At the end of the day, it was a spreadsheet, you know, big spreadsheet, but it took a lot of work to go into it. And so when I realized that sometimes when you see these fancy metrics packages, there's a lot of work behind the scenes that goes into making it look easy and making it useful for people. Right. And at some point, I don't know which year exactly, you became just Shadow, right? Could you talk a bit about that experience and what you saw during that bit of your life? Yeah, I was very lucky to spend over two years working side by side with Jeff. And that was in the summer of 2003 and for a little over two years it was a time where we were really just taking ideas, a lot of ideas that people thought were silly or were skeptical that we should even be doing them, like this web services thing that would become AWS, you know, Amazon Prime, should we start building hardware to go into the digital uh, delivery of goods, fulfillment by Amazon, it was called many different names before that came out. So got to see how those ideas were really refined, simplified, and then built in a way so they could scale to millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people. So pretty special to see that process. But then the other half, which really didn't make it outside of the company in which a lot of people don't hear about Amazon is Jeff Bezos spent a lot of time focusing inward on the company about how do I instrument our processes and you have the right set of principles so we can double and triple and I don't have to be in the room making all of the decisions. And so he really spent a lot of effort instrumenting Amazon so it could scale both in terms of number of people, complexity, geographies, product lines. And if you look at it, Amazon makes remarkably consistent decisions across very, very different businesses, geographies, and businesses with operating characteristics. And then after that, you moved to IMDb or you were in charge of like several departments in Amazon for a bit. What happened next? No, so after working with Jeff, I looked at IMDb. It was a great business. Amazon bought IMDb in 98, shortly after I arrived at Amazon. And it had different characteristics. It was an advertising business, also a subscription business. So I thought it was a good time to learn something new. And I was the chief operating officer there for about five years. It's a wholly owned subsidiary and still is by Amazon today. So it's a standalone website. And we also really got into what it takes to make online advertising work. Also. Yeah. And at some point you were, I, I didn't know you at the time, you moved to Singapore to become chief operating officer of Redmart. And for those of you who are listening, Redmart is a pretty big deal here. For the longest time, it was the only way to get grocery deliveries in Singapore. Could you talk about that? Like, had you lived outside the US at that point in time? Was Singapore your first stop outside the US? I never, yeah, so we had never lived outside of the US. And we had young kids at, at the time and really wanted them to experience, as did we, living outside of the US, getting a completely different uh, perspective on things. So it was kind of a reverse move. We wanted to go somewhere. And then once we decided, okay, we're, go we're going, figured out what was the right place and you know, built a geeky spreadsheet with a bunch of characteristics and what we were looking for <laughs> and started learning about all uh, different places around the world. And Singapore ended up at the top of the list and then said, okay, now go figure out what's going on in Singapore, what, what interesting things are. So I was fortunate to have met the folks at Redmart. And Redmart was about the same size that Amazon was when I had joined. And Redmart's was grocery delivery service. And so I thought it would be a good chance to apply a lot of the things that I learned at Amazon 
and say maybe let's see if it works here at Redmark because it's you know it started again. There's some different characteristics with scheduled delivery versus unconstrained transport networks at Amazon, but a lot of similarities. And so it was I really enjoyed my time at Redmart for for two years. At some point, you decided to write the book, working backwards, which is how I found you. Right, I found the book, read it. I was like, finally, somebody was explaining some of the bits that allow Amazon to be Amazon. How did the idea for the book come up? Why do you decide to write it? Was it something that we were talking with your co-author Bill Carr? over the years? Yeah, so it was probably about five years ago, Bill Carr and I were, were friends outside of work too. And um, we were having dinner one night and he had just gotten back from a venture capital conference. He was an entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm and they got their portfolio CEOs and other CEOs from around the country together to talk about different ideas and the topic of Amazon came up. And one CEO raised his hand and said, Amazon, I don't mm. get it. How are they into things like cloud computing, you know, delivery of goods, digital delivery, and then physical delivery of goods? And I'm still trying to figure out how to open my stores reliably one at a time. And this was a CEO of a large public corporation. And so as Bill and I were talking that night, we realized a couple things. One is that we get this question all the time, how does Amazon work? Two, we also realized there's no satisfactory or complete answer out there. And the bits and pieces that we had read or watched people talking about it was either incomplete, inaccurate, and some combination of those two. And then the last thing is we realized that both Bill and I were fortunate enough to have been in the right place in the right time. Well, to answer the question in a nuts and bolts way about how does Amazon work, we were in the room while we were developing them, making mistakes refining them. And Bill spent uh, 15 years at Amazon. He was the second employee in the digital group and then ended up running digital music and video in Prime Studios. So we were in separate parts of Amazon. We had good broad coverage, but we got to see some of these things from the ground up. So, you know, I'm an engineer by training. I didn't know what I was getting into when we said oh, we should write a book. And so that's what we set out to do was just to really answer the question, how does Amazon work? Really to talk about these advances in management science is how we view them yes. uh, to help the next generation of business leaders. Yeah, well, it certainly helped me. Like One of the most valuable things about the book was that you told the story of how you came up with the mechanisms. You don't just describe the mechanisms because the mechanisms were solutions to problems that you experience at Amazon. And then you also told the story of the trial and error process to create the mechanisms, because I think that's the more important bit, right? You can't just copy mechanisms wholesale and apply it to a completely different context. You need to have some understanding of like, why were these mechanisms created in the first place? And what I really liked about the book was that you were there and you could remember, if I recall correctly, you asked a couple of colleagues from the time to piece together, like, what was the trial and error process to create each of these mechanisms? And that was amazing. (laughs) Like, it's so rare to find these stories out in the world. They are oral histories of certain bits of Amazon's history, but there was no explanation of like how did single-threaded leaders come about or how did six pages of peer FAQs come about. And maybe we should talk a bit about some of the trial and error process for the WBR because of the five mechanisms in the book. If I remember, I'm fairly sure I remember this correctly because I read the book like cover to cover a few times. You don't really talk about the trial and error process that led to the WBR in the book, right? Whereas you did about the PR FAQ and about the six pager. So maybe talk a bit about like how did the WBR emerge and was it something that emerged organically or was it a particular problem to solve? 
Well, if I had to look at a particular starting point, I mean, every company looks at metrics mm-hmm. just to see how did we do for what the time period is. But really, if, if I were to say a word that, you know, what is considered the WBR today at Amazon started, it was in the early, very early 2000s or 2001, mm-hmm. where, you know, each holiday season, we had more demand than we could actually handle. And so one, we would want to gate or cut off the demand and the delivery time so we could make sure everyone got their packages for the holidays. Two, we had to make sure we didn't take any more orders in any given day than we could fulfill. And because we didn't want to disappoint customers, especially at this time of year. So we had to really balance supply and demand. And lastly, we didn't want to turn away any demand unnecessarily too, because this, for most of the people, it was their first experience shopping online. And, you know, the great way to lose customers is to disappoint them the, the very first time they try your service. And we did not want that to happen. And so just to really answer the question about, well, how many orders can we take today based on all of the constraints that have accrued up until today and how can we accept more demand and really answer that in a data-driven way. We had a war room where we'd get together literally multiple times a day to say, okay, when do we start to put the brakes on things and can we fulfill everything? A lot of us are working in the fulfillment centers at night too during that time after our day jobs. And so we realized that this is very useful information. We didn't just need it for the holidays. We should probably turn this into a, a scalable and repeatable process week in and week out and maybe not do it two times a day and you know at midnight before you go to sleep but turn it into something where you have a little more lead time and you can react more appropriately and make high air quality decisions. So that was really, I would say, a starting point where we said, hey, we need this process really to comprehensively and quantitatively answer the questions One, how did the business do last week or last period? Two, what was the customer experience? We wanted to have data that answered that. And then three, are we on track to hit our goals? And in this case, our goal was to serve as much demand for the holidays as we could. I want to dig a bit deeper into the WBR. So like listeners listening to this, the title of the entire podcast would be Colin Bryant on the WBR because that's part of the context for how we know each other, right? Now you apply the WBR as a process to other companies. You advise them on how to implement something close to the WBR. And often when I'm talking to companies, right, and they say that, oh, we also have an MBR or QBR. And then I dig in a little bit to ask, what does it actually look like? And it turns out to be PowerPoint slides. There's words and graphs. And I'm like, that's not how Amazon does it. So maybe for the uninitiated listener, could you explain what is the Amazon WBR? I think you've already mentioned what its goals are, but from the top, if somebody's listening to this and they have an idea of what a metrics review looks like in their company, how is Amazon's WBR different from a typical company's metrics review meeting? Yeah, so a WBR, it's really the data tells the story. And so if you have to ask why or have paragraphs and explain things. You probably want data to be able to do that. So WBR deck at Amazon, they're different businesses now at Amazon, but let's just focus on the, the retail business. It really is a data-driven answer to those three questions. You know, what customer experience, what the business do, and are we on track to hit our goals? So how does it compare to what we've seen a lot of organizations? A lot of organizations do a pretty good job at answering what was our revenue last week or like what did we do last week and mostly kind of outputs like how did we do 
But you know, if you were to flip through an Amazon weekly business review, you'd have a data-driven answer to what did our customers experience last week? Because in the end, those two ways of measuring the same thing in the long run, you can't have a fantastic business unless you consistently deliver a fantastic customer experience. So you measure both of them and you want to look at them together and make sure that you're working on the right things that customers care about. So that's one thing that is different, I would say, from an Amazon WBR from other organizations that we've seen. And then the second one is just the sheer amount of data. At Amazon, we weren't scared by looking at a lot of data. We wanted to look through it efficiently and look at the data that mattered. But you don't always know what you need to look at going into that week. We're not big fans of the one metric to rule them all or even five metrics, that's not enough for a complex business. And one week, the bottleneck may be in one area that you need to focus on, and the next week it may be in a completely different area. And so in Amazon WBR, it's a rich set of data, a lot of data that describes the customer experience. So about 70 to 80% of the metrics there really describe what happened to customers. And then the remaining part, you know, 20 to 30% is what we call the output metrics about how did the business do. So that's um, a little bit about what it looks like and how it's different from a lot of organizations. Because it sounds very similar, right? Like what did the customer experience last week and how did the business do last week? It sounds somewhat similar. It's just two ways of looking at the same thing. Do you have any stories of like, why asking the first question would result in different metrics from the second question? Well, they're different metrics. They yield the same outcomes. So we would measure, you know, one way that you can instrument or build the WBR is you try to measure everything, every interaction the customer has with your organization. So how did they get there? What was the first thing they saw when they got there? What did they do? How long did it take us to respond? What promises Mm -hmm. did we make to the customers and did we actually keep them? What data did we show them and any of that data turn out to be false later on? So things like that or, you know, did they find what they were looking for? How many customers came to a particular page but left because the item was out of stock? You know, we kind of let down a customer in that case. They were looking for something. Hey, they found something. They liked the product. Oh, sorry, this product's not available. Or, or it's a higher price than it is available on three other competitor sites. So those are things about measuring what the customer experience is. You can go all, all the way through to delivery. And, you know, how long did it take to get there? What did we promise? Did we get it there early? Did we get it late? All of those things customers care about. And at the end of the day, they're probably not going to order again if you let them down one or more times during that path. And so it's easy to measure, well, how many orders did we take today? And what was the average selling price? And what was our revenue? Yay, it was higher than yesterday. But you want to know, is the customer experience getting better each day and each week? Because they're going to tell their friends about their experience with the organization. And word of mouth is usually the most important form of marketing that any customer can have or any company can have. Um, Another big thing that you were incredibly clear about in the time that we were working on that WBR project together was the difference between controllable input metrics and output metrics. And you also highlighted this in the book, right? You said it's really important to differentiate between controllable input metrics and output metrics. Could you talk about that? Most people measure output metrics and actually measure them pretty well. How much revenue did we do? What, what was our gross margin, gross profit? What's the share price at the end of the day or end of the month? You know, free cash flow. So things like that, those are output metrics. You know, those measure outcomes that you want to have happen. Input metrics are really the things that if you do those things right, they will yield the outcomes that you want to have happen. 
it sounds pretty easy when well, you yeah, just identify your input metrics, but it's usually a very long list of input metrics, first of all. It's not one or two things you need to do right in order to build a large, enduring, profitable business. And you have to go figure them out. And a lot of times you're not really measuring them. Some of the things that I talked about, about customer goes to a page on the app or on the website, was that product in stock at that point in time when they looked at the page? Unless you're recording that data at the time, you can't really summarize it and then report in your WBR. Here's everything customers looked at, and here's the percentage of time that we were in stock versus out of stock. Or here's the price that they saw at that particular point in time, and here's what the price was on Walmart, on Best Buy for this product. And yes, we were within our pricing policy, or no, our pricing policy was out of bounds at that time. So sometimes you have to put in a lot of work to instrument all of those input metrics. But the things I'm talking about, those are things customers care about. Did I find the product I'm looking for? Is it cheap enough and can I buy it and can I get it fast enough? A lot of people call them leading indicators. We like to use a stronger term called customer-facing controllable input metrics, which means you're making a conscious choice as an organization. Are we going to do initiatives to drive these controllable input metrics because you can control them into the right direction or are we going to work on something else? So it's a conscious choice that you make as an organization about how much are we going to invest in driving these controllable input metrics in the right direction to yield the outcomes that we want to have happen for a a big profitable business. How do you know if you have the right controllable input metrics? Part of it, (laughs) you, you you talked one about trial and error, that is a huge part of it. First of all, you have to start somewhere and you have a lot of intuition, especially as you have a successful company led by founders or group of people. You kind of know a lot of what makes the business tick and a lot of your decisions are based on instincts which happen to be pretty good if you've gotten this far. But in order to change that to a repeatable, scalable, and teachable Mm. process to dozens, hundreds, or thousands of people, you actually have to quantify it and measure that. And so a couple of different ways, how you know if it's input metric that really yields the outcome, you look at it on a constant basis and say, this went up, what happened to our output Mm. metric? Did it go up with an appropriate time lag? If it didn't, then you say, well, is this really the right metric? A lot of times you either are measuring something wrong, you know, it's not quite right, so you need to tweak the metric, or it's a composite metric, it's really two separate things, and it hides some of the variation of the underlying metrics underneath. So you break that metric up into different metrics so you can really understand what's going on. But there is some element of trial and error. You know, I wish you could just throw all the data out for our company and say, Go discover my input metrics. We have different techniques to help you get your list of input metrics and output metrics that you can use to get started. But ultimately, once you get that list, you need to look at that. And like we talked about swimming in the data, you know, daily, weekly, monthly. So you realize that there is a correlation here or there's not. And if there's not, you need to go re-instrument or figure out what the correct input metrics are. Because all output metrics do have input metrics going in. Yeah. When I started talking about the WBR to people, one of the reactions was that it sounds so unscientific, this trial and error process. You have to go and test and drive up a controllable input metric and wait for some lag period. And then it's like, oh, wouldn't it be possible to look at data and say, like, oh, there's a correlation here. So therefore, this must be a controllable input metric to this output metric. And then the second question they have after they say this is like, and how do you know the lag time? How can you figure out what's the appropriate lag time to wait? Because people are impatient. And what if it yeah. takes months? 
So putting yourself in the mindset of the customer helps answer a lot of those questions. So one thing is these variables, they're not independent Mm. of one another. So if you have great prices, but it's not in stock, you lose the order. If you have an in-stock price and you can get it delivered to customers, but if the price is too high, you lose the order. Or if it takes too long to serve the website or webpage to customers, you're going to lose some orders there too. So to say, hey, we drove this one metric in the right direction. Did we get the revenue we wanted? You know, sometimes you get that like marketing campaigns. Here's the traffic. Here's what that traffic did. Or you can do any type of an A-B test and compare it to controls or similar situations. But a lot of these things, you have to do a lot of things right in order to earn the trust and the dollars from your customer. And so it's not a simple one-to-one mapping for this will drive revenue for a lot of these metrics. But you know customers care about low prices. So being able to lower your cost structure so you can lower prices, that's great. You know people want stuff faster and then they want more products. You know, 10 years from now, people aren't going to say, this Amazon is great. I just wish their prices were a little higher and it took me longer to get my goods and I could waste some time not finding things that I was looking for. So you know that you're improving the customer experience, even if it doesn't have a direct impact on revenue tomorrow, which some of those lead times are a lot longer than that. Yeah, I think the thing that bothers people like me from engineering backgrounds is that there are no clear relationships because the business is a complex system. There are like multiple inputs and all of them have varying degrees of effects on the things that you care about and they trickle down, but you don't actually know precisely like, oh, how I drive down the cost structure, exactly what percentage does that lead to good outcomes down the road to revenue or inventory tends or all these things, right? And so how do you deal with that? The fact that in a business, you can't get that kind of precision of like this particular set of inputs. They all contribute percentage outputs to the outcomes you care about, which is revenue and other output financial yeah. metrics. So a WBR, it's not a solution that solves mm-hmm. every problem for every company. It's like one piece and one process that really gives you almost real time. You know, you, you want to look at some real time and daily data, but we found the right cadence for looking at a lot of this was mm-hmm. weekly. So it, it just gives you a constant stream of those, you know, the questions that I asked, what are customers experience? Where's the business trending? And are we on track to hit our goals? So it tells you the truth about what's happening and also gives you some insights into why it's happening that way. But you still need to go through and take the next step about, okay, now we have all the resources in our organization. How do we deploy these resources to drive which input metrics in the right direction? What's the right investment in terms of reducing delivery time versus lowering cost structure versus adding more selection versus expanding geographically? That is hard planning work and you need to do that. Unless you have that high fidelity, constant stream of data coming in, you're typically, you will make a high quality decision if you have a high quality incoming stream of data. And that's what the WBR and some of these other things provide is really the truth about what's happening to your customers and your business and then where it's trending. But then you need to take that information and react to it and figure out what to do next and to build for customers. Right. Maybe to anchor the next couple of questions we're going to ask, it would be helpful to describe what a typical WBR feels like. So when is the WBR deck generated? What happens next? What happens when you walk into the room? And then like, what happens during a WBR? Yeah, so a good set of questions. And usually, if let's just say your week runs from Monday through Sunday for the purpose of this discussion. So you come in on Monday and you 
like me as a metric owner. So every metric in the WBR deck has a metric owner, typically a business owner and a finance owner. You know, the finance owner audits, make sure it's correct. And the business owner is responsible for figuring out like what happened to that metric for the week. So the metric owners and finance team, they look at that. Here's the data that came in from last week. They've also gotten hints through daily reports for the week. So it's not the very first time they're seeing this data. And the first thing they do is they look for variances, noteworthy variances, and then ask themselves, so why did this happen? You know, the WBR doesn't tell you everything. So sometimes you have to like, why was there a blip in terms of revenue for this particular geography? So that you have to go figure out, well, what happened? Well, we had some labor issues or there was a storm that delayed deliveries, you know, whatever it happens to be, but you need to try to explain the variance. So the, the first thing is that all the metric owners on Monday and then Tuesday, if it's a bigger group, it can kind of spill over a cascade, notice and study, analyze and explain their variances, get an explanation for what happened. The company-wide WBR typically happens on a Wednesday, one, because it takes time to do that analysis, discovery and analysis. Two, most holidays are like on Mondays and Fridays. So if you put in the middle of the week, everyone's usually going to be there. People aren't going to be on vacation. So it's just logistically, yeah. it's an easier day to have too. So midweek, the company gets together and it's the top leaders of the company, plus all of the metric owners and age like Zoom, you can extend it to as many people who you're comfortable sharing the data with because it's a great experience for even new people to the company to really see at a detailed level about how are all these parts interacted and related. So that's the way it happens. It's a 60 to 90 minutes, depending on some organization. It's mostly 60, some spill over into 90 minutes, where you just go through end to end, and it's mostly the same metrics. You know, sometimes you add or take out a few, but that doesn't happen too often. Each week, you get a consistent view of snapshot of the business to get you that data-driven answer. How many metrics in Amazon per WBR? Well, it depends on the team, but having a 60, 70-page deck with lots of metrics on each page is not uncommon. So you can't go through and study each individual metric. So the way that these meetings are run is they're exception-driven, and you talk about the variances, the noteworthy things. So it's not a status report mm. is one thing. It's not to know, well, we shipped a 1,000 orders on Monday. You don't need to get the top 80 people in the company together and have someone stand up and say, we shipped a 1,000 orders on Monday. That's a waste of like 30 seconds for something. So it's really, you focus on the exceptions, which is one reason why the teams beforehand in the Monday and Tuesday need to go study and come in prepared to talk about their exceptions. So it's a rich deck with lots of data, you know, a couple different formats, some graphical formats, some of it is tabular and text heavy, but it compares to prior periods, last week, last quarter, last year, comparing to plans. So a data point in isolation doesn't tell the full story. So you need to look at it in context. So I've been putting the WBR to practice for a couple of months now, basically everything that I learned from you. And one of the things that I found a little unusual at the beginning was, I remember you telling me it's actually necessary to look at the metric, even if it's for one second, even if there's no exception, before you move on to the next one. You don't skip over metrics. Why is that important in general at Amazon? Given that there's like 60, 70 pages, it's a lot of metrics, right? Four charts per page, I assume, and that's like in the hundreds. So why is it still important to take a look at the metric before you move on? Well, one, just knowing what normal looks um, like is useful in and of itself. 
And two, some things have SLAs and you want to know, are you creeping closer to your SLA? Are you under it? Are people sandbagging? Is it too high? Should you challenge yourself a little bit more? You want to look at that. And then sometimes that is the chart that you need to look at and discuss if there is a variant. So a lot of the times it'll be a boring chart for 49 weeks and then week 50, it's the one you need to look at. And then for another couple months, you don't need to really spend time looking at it. So think of it almost like if you're driving, you look down really quickly at your dashboard, you get a lot of information in, but you're not studying each of the metrics. You kind of look down and look up, but it helps you tell is the car operating appropriately and am I driving the way I need to to get to where I want to go. Mm. So if you do this sort of like sense thing and you see something that you suspect the team might be sandbagging, is that an appropriate place to bring it up in the WBL or do you schedule a follow-up meeting? Because discussions like that can take a lot of time. Yeah, so a good WBR, well, first of all, one, the variances are brought up in advance. So you don't have to ask, why did this graph jump up or down? If it's my turn and I'm part of the retail deck, I'll say, okay, so we're now going into online marketing or we're going into logistics. Here's one thing I want everyone to point out. Here's the variance and here's why it happened. So you don't wait for someone to ask why it happened to you because you're prepared And some people may ask other questions they have looking at the data for either the first time or they have questions. So for things like, are we sandbagging? Like the WBR, that's not the appropriate time to have that discussion or certainly not to solve the, if let's say it's not sandbagging, but if it's a problem, last thing you want is 60 people with very little data telling you how to run your business and what you should do to solve your problem. It frustrates you, it frustrates the other 60, 80 people, and it's not a data-driven discussion. So that turns out to be a waste of time. So in the WBR, if there is an issue that you can't really answer right away, it's best to say, I don't know. And then it's best to table aggressively, but you want to table it, you want to assign an owner, make sure the action is clear, and then make sure that there's some feedback loop to where the information gets back to the group. It could be the Mm -hmm. next week or could be through some other type of notification. But no, a well-run WBR, there's not a lot of problem solving going on. The sandbagging case doesn't happen too often, by the way, because it's inherently obvious. And that's the wrong time to bring it up. You bring it up with a team offline for that and change that goal when appropriate. Right. Okay. So the other thing that leapt out at me is that you, as the metrics owner, should be able to tell when the variance is special, like when it's worthy of investigation, because normally a number goes up or down, and most of the time it's just a routine variation, right? How would you know if the variance is special and worthy of discussion or investigation? Yeah, so some companies do use statistical process control type tools, you know, control charts, and Motorola is a big pioneer, the whole Six Sigma and looking at control charts there. At Amazon, we found another way to do it is if you're just looking at a lot of data every day and every week, you can just really tell, hey, this something's not right here. And so whatever works for you to spot these variances is fine. There's not one particular technique. Some groups, even within Amazon, do use control charts. So I wouldn't say they're required. If it helps you find variances, use them. If it doesn't, take that complexity out and because it's already a complex deck and move forward. The end goal is to be able to spot the variances. And a lot of the great leaders at Amazon can take a look at a lot of data really quickly and are just able to intuit, well, these three areas, hey, they don't seem right. Tell me what's going on here. 
And you only get that by looking at the data on a repeated basis, understanding what it's truly measuring, understanding the customer's experience behind it, understanding the impacts of those metrics onto the outcomes or the output metrics that you have. So luckily it is teachable. Mm. It's not just an intuitive skill that only a few have, and they're the ones who ask all of the types of questions. It sure sounds like one of the easy things was that Amazon had a lot of people who understood how to look at data and they understood the importance of variances. Whereas if you're coming into a new company who might not have a prevailing data-driven culture or a data-mature culture who understand all these things, it may be actually quite difficult to get people to understand this. So how would you think about that if you're coming into an organization that isn't as data savvy, they don't understand that variation is a thing and that you need to separate signal from noise, right? How would you approach that particular cultural dynamic? Well, one, that is a case where some control charts Mm. may help because one of the big things that that helps you do is you want to respond to signal and not respond to noise. Responding to noise is usually a wasted effort because you don't really know what the root cause is, so your solution's probably not going to fix whatever the root cause happened to be. Or there may have been nothing to fix. could have been normal variation, and you're trying to fix something that's unfixable Mm. because it's inherent variation in the process. So signal is variation that actually matters, like some external event changed this process, and that is something you want to pay attention to. So that's what control charts are actually pretty good at that with the right types of data sets and tools. But another way to do it is if you can't really explain why something happened and explain it in a quantitative matter, then ask yourself, well, what data do we need to collect in order to figure out what's happening? A lot of times you're not measuring that data, and it's real work to go instrument your systems to get it done. But asking why is another great technique to figure out, well, what can we and should we be measuring? Then the last thing is when something goes wrong, that's a great opportunity to ask, well, what could we or should we have been measuring that would have told us this was going to happen so we could have prevented it in the first place? And you realize, yeah, we weren't measuring this, but now if we had been measuring, we would have noticed this process creeping out of control and we would have applied some resources before it broke and we would have fixed it and it would have never been a problem. So those are a couple of different techniques to really uncover or discover your input metrics. But I cannot underestimate putting yourself in the customer's mind and saying, what do customers really care about? And are we delivering on those things? In order to deliver on those things, you have to measure those Mm. things. Could you tell a story about a controllable input metric that was particularly tricky to figure out or some variation that was tricky to figure out? Yeah. So one thing, and we do talk about this one in the book, is adding selection to the product catalog. Sounds pretty simple. One thing you need to do, remember, is that if you ask people to drive a metric in the right direction, they usually will take it to heart and drive it in the right direction or the direction you're asking to and that specific metric. So we asked the category teams, hey, add more products to our catalog. So they did a couple of things. They first of all said, what's the best way to get as many products in our catalog as possible? Well, it's to sign up with a distributor who's middleman between a manufacturer and the retailer. You pay for that, so it's a bit more expensive. The second one is who has the most products and not really looking at are these products going to drive sales? I was asked to just fill up the warehouses with products for sale. So again, simplistic single metric. And so we ended up with warehouses that were full, stuff that wasn't selling, with inventory that we would either have to write down, mark down, and write off. And we realized, well, 
it wasn't the category manager's fault. <laughs> they did what we asked them to do. So we need another metric. We still believe selection is important. We should have things in our fulfillment centers that customers are looking for. And it took several iterations, but really the metric, and it was a fairly complex one, happened to be anytime a customer went to a product page, the denominator went up by one. And then anytime that we had a product that you could ship with via Amazon Prime, I'll just simplify it, the numerator went up by one. If you didn't have it, it was zero. So it was called demand. And so this has a couple of things you'll notice here. One is it's demand weighted. It's not sales weighted. It's based on what the customers are looking at. One problem with sales weighted, if you're not doing well and the sales go down, the metric becomes less important because, well, there's not many sales for that oh. item. But if you were the one who caused the drop in sales yourself, that's a problem. So we wanted a customer view of sales weighted, which was what are they looking at today on the website and how many of those products, each individual product, do we have available to ship via Amazon Prime? So that demand weighted in stock is what it eventually happened to be called. Complicated metric, not a cool name or anything like that. And then to explain how you measure it, it's quite complicated. And to collect all that data when you have 100 million plus items in the catalog, not a trivial project either. But it turned out to be that's what one customers cared about. Two, it drove the right behavior for the category teams because they would get inventory and products in the catalog that customers were looking at, and so it helped their inventory position. And then the third thing, very importantly, is when you drove that metric in the right direction, we did notice an increase in sales mm. in the output metric. So that's an example of a journey. It didn't happen overnight. It probably took a little over a year to get from, let's just throw products in the in our fulfillment centers to having that instrumented metric being in the WBR. So that's an example of what it means when we talk about, you got to start somewhere, so pick something. Look at the correlation if there isn't one. Ask yourself, is this really a metric or an area we should be measuring? And if it's yes, are we measuring it the right way? And, and then does it have the resulting impact in your output metrics? This is really cool because another thing that comes out in that story is that the demand-weighted metric is very customer-centric. And, and that, I think, is an example of a metric that you will get if you ask what did the customer experience last week versus how did the business do last week. Do you have another story of a controllable input metric and an output metric where you had to work a little bit to find the right controllable input metric? Well, so I'll tell you one that's really not directly customer related, but we're looking at not only delivery times, but did we deliver on time within the window that we promise? And if you don't deliver it at all, if the customer doesn't get their good or you ship them the wrong thing or it's too late, it's very expensive to fix that. And most organizations, we seem to underestimate the cost of letting down a customer. But when you peeled back the layers about, well, what's causing these are different techniques like the five whys. You keep asking why until you get to the bare metal. That was another, Amazon didn't invent that. We thought it was cool. So now Amazon used that a lot, but it turned out to be something called inventory record accuracy, which was the stuff just wasn't where we thought it was in the warehouse. So in order to say, order this in the next 37 minutes and 22 seconds, and you'll get it in 12 hours, you actually have to know where it is and you have to have pretty certain it's there. So that was a metric that one customers cared about deeply. They just didn't know it. And so we spent a whole lot of effort really making sure that every item was in the right aisle bin shelf and in the right condition. And so inventory record accuracy turned out to be hugely important. This was a controllable input metric. And customers noticed when it went in the wrong direction, but they noticed it indirectly. 
through you know, manifested itself through other types of output metrics. So that's another example of how you trace back to what are the right inputs that actually drive the business. You can look at things like response time for different types of services. As you move to a services-based architecture or these microservices, the milliseconds add up. And so unless you're measuring at the end, well, when the customer tapped their phone, what happened and how long did it take? Sometimes that's hard to measure, but we noticed when it crept up, sales went down. So guess what? We're now going to start to measure latency, not only of the individual services, but time to glass from request to the time to glass where the customer saw it. You know, you said inventory accuracy, was it? The metric? Inventory record accuracy. How how do you track that? That's a physical metric that has to do with the warehouse and the worker. How do you instrument that? Yeah, so there are different techniques to sampling, essentially, random sampling. Here's what we assert is it has to be random because you don't want to cycle. Cycle counting is counting all of your inventory. You Mm. can't do that. The turnaround time is too small. So you have to get a statistically relevant random sample and then say, here's where all of the inventory is on this list go out and verify and if it's not it you mark it and then even if it's not well was it on the shelf above or below or you get a little bit of data and you figure out well why are we misplacing some inventory sometimes you notice that it's the higher shelves that have more errors than the lower shelves it's probably because it broke when people were stowing it so you figure out those root causes and then you just slowly fix it each day and each week to get better at that. Do you only apply the WBR to customer-facing processes or does it also apply to internal functions like HR or legal? Yeah, high volume type things you can. So for an HR and recruiting, for instance, you've got a workflow in terms of your candidate sourcing, phone screens, interviews, and then offers. And so that's a whole process that you can instrument and figure out where is it working well? How's the pipeline and where is it leaking and how do we fix it? Things that don't happen that often, like number of legal Ooh. cases or issues resolved. You have to ask yourself, what is the appropriate cadence to measure? So some of those things don't really fit in terms of a weekly business review. Right. But Amazon does measure recruiting as part of the top line WBR? Well, yeah. And in some cases, it was right in the deck, especially when we realized what was causing us to miss some of our goals for the year. We weren't hiring software engineers fast enough. So that made it into the deck about, you know, okay, what is our hiring pipeline? Where are we on track? Because we knew if we didn't do that, none of this other stuff would have been successful. So it wasn't the whole HR deck that went there. And it wasn't in there all the time either. Once that was under control and it wasn't really an efficient use of the top leaders in the company looking at that data, then you can take that out of the deck. But if that's what's causing your pain points for an organization, you want to shine a spotlight on that because it helps get it fixed faster too. (laughs) Nice, yeah. You do a lot of WBR work now where you're coming into an existing company with an existing culture and you introduce the mechanism to them, right? Could you perhaps walk through at a high level? What is that like? What's the first step that you want to do if I'm a CEO of an organization? I want to implement the WBI because I've heard good things about it. What's the first thing that you would tell me? Well, the first thing is the CEO leaders have to be willing to try it and they're bought into the Mm. concept. We can talk about the concept and tell them the benefits of it and our experience with it. 
But this is not a lightweight process. And if the CEO and the leaders are not on board and we recommend, well, okay, you should figure out some other way to measure your business because this isn't something that you can do halfway. And there's real work and real projects that need to happen in order to get it done. So that's step one is people have to be bought in. So that part of that is introducing the concept. We're not out to say this is the only way companies should be run. But again, it's something that Amazon has used to really devastating effectiveness, I would say, in terms of being operationally efficient. And so if people want to take that next step, we're then happy to help them move along. The second one is really, it's the second phase is what we call discovering your input Mm -hmm. metrics. And so there are several different techniques where we work with the executive teams, but also the operating teams to come up with that list of input metrics. Here, you're not measuring anything. It's really just literally a list of here's a metric. And it's not like improve efficiency. It has to be a smart metric and it has to be something a computer can go calculate. And then inevitably, once you go through that process, organizations have that list a lot longer than what they're tracking now and what they have the ability to track. So you go and prioritize that. Okay, so here are the metrics that we need to really get started. So you can call it your MVP, or this is like, we have to have these metrics in order to start the the WBR. Then usually there's real work that needs to be done by the BI team or the operating units have to figure out how to go collect that data. And we work with a lot of data. So one thing that's really important is to have consistency in how it's reported. So you want to build a data ingestion pipeline that can take data from a number of different sources, doesn't care where it comes from, but it turns it into something that looks like your company's WBR. And so you're not looking at one chart has 13 months and then another one's got Mm. the last six weeks and then another one's got 12 months. And then another one just has current week and no other. So you want to eliminate all of that so you can look at a lot more data in a quicker fashion. So you build that ingestion pipeline. And then we meet with company teams again to say, okay, here's what a WBR looks like. Here's how it's going to run. Here's what you need to do before your WBR and during your WBR and after your WBR. And then we sit on these operating weekly business reviews until that company gets self-sufficient. So that's kind of what instrumenting building in WBR looks like for an organization. Incredibly heavy. What are some of the more tricky ways you've seen over time? You've implemented it in a couple of companies now. What are some of the most common failure modes during this process? Well, one we learned is that you have to be willing to do it and put in the work to get it done. So we tried up front to identify what we call single-threaded leaders. Mm. Do you have the resources to get it done? Are you going to use this data to manage the business? If you're just saying, but I only care about revenue, so I'm looking at revenue each week. I'll go to the WBR, but I don't care about that stuff. The revenue number, that's what I'm going to manage to. And so if you're just managing to your outputs, we just recommend not starting that project. And so that is really the biggest one is just buy in to go try out the concept And then another one is just not being able to get the data you want. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it takes a little bit longer just because your data is not even in your data lake. You have to go to these source systems and start to build these antennas to collect the information about what customers are experiencing. So sometimes it can take a little longer depending on the state of the data pipelines and whether you're measuring the right things. Must you have all the data in place before you start doing a WPR? Or could you start out with a subset that you already have and then slowly add over time? Well, you started with a subset when I looked the list of Mm. what you want is a lot bigger than the Mm. list of what you need to get started. 
Sometimes you can start with a particular department and do proof of concept and then expand it. Those are two different ways. But yeah, you want to first make sure that you've got the ability to add and take out metrics in almost an automated fashion because the last thing you want to do is spend time like we did at Amazon creating that analytics package every week because that just takes a lot of time and then you throw it away. The thing about WBR, the WBR has a very short half-life. It's very useful on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, but then it's kind of like the newspaper. You never read it again. You've got action items, but then you're on to the next one. So you want to make it as cheap as possible to produce each week in and out. One of the surprising things that I learned from you was that the early days of the WBR was generated by Excel. And in some of the companies that you personally ran and you came in and introduced the WBR process, you also started with Excel, which is quite expensive, (laughs) Well, if you want to do it, you have to start somehow. And waiting six months, 12 months to go purchase some other software or get the right data. Amazon managed a multi-billion dollar company building an Excel deck every week. And we did it because we had to. Sure, we would have loved if it was an automated thing and didn't require many resources to create that. But that's what we needed to make our customers happy. So that's what we did. So you can be scrappy and get the data however you want. And it's not something that needs to be perfect. The very first week, Amazon is still discovering input metrics for various businesses and outputs that they want to drive and learning things in the WBR. Really, the most important thing is to just get started measuring and analyzing and then reacting appropriately to the signal that it gives. How do you balance between applying the WBR to more known parts of your business and newer businesses that you've no product market fit, you don't really know whether the business is going to succeed? During your time at Amazon, you were there for the creation of the Kindle and the creation of AWS, right? You didn't apply the WBR to those projects early on when you were unsure of what the projects actually were. So how do you balance between this sort of more predictable parts of the business versus new bets that are totally unknown, fully uncertain in the early days? Well, I would just say we did apply some of the WBR techniques. They might have been in the corporate WBR because those businesses were tiny and weren't really worth, again, showing to the top people in the company. But when we first launched most new services, before we even launched them, we would say, what do we need to measure to figure out, are we offering a good customer experience? Mm -hmm. So in terms of AWS, yeah, we did measure how fast are these services, how many errors do we have, what was the downtime in terms of consecutive seconds, what time period, what do people care about, time to recover. So there was a rich set of data. And in that case, you're primarily measuring the customer experience. Like, was it a good one? Because you have the early adopters and you want to make sure that you're delivering the promise that you made to those, because those are the people who are going to tell the next set of people, don't use this or go use this. In terms of the video and music when it started, delivering streaming bits over the web back then was not as seamless <laughs> it is as it seems today. And so measuring the rebuffers and how long it took to load the instant from the time you hit play to where you actually started watching or listening to something. So there was a lot of data that we had that really told us, is this a high quality customer experience? And we would define what high quality meant. So yeah, even those small businesses that's going to tell you whether it's going to be successful or not. And we realized that was almost more important than how much revenue did S3 do the week it launched. I don't know, not that much. (laughs) But was it up for 24-7? And what was the response rate? What were the long types of queries that S3 had? How do we fix those? 
that's the data, especially for early stage businesses you want to pay attention to. Jeff Bezos talks about taking pride in operational excellence. And what that really means is that a lot of the work that you're going to do as an individual or team, no one else is going to see. And so the motivation to get it right has to come from within. And in order to get it right, you have to measure what happened. And so the teams that do well care about all of those little details and measure them from the very first moment that a product is launched. So you do have to keep track of metrics when the product is launched. But in the early days, in the six-pager PR FAQ days, you don't track metrics, right? When the product is still in gestation, when you're still trying to figure out what it is you're trying to offer. Is that right? Well, I mean, for a lot of that, when you're going through the working backwards PRFAQ stage, the product's actually not out there yet because you're still trying to figure out what is the customer experience that we're trying to build. But by the time it's launched, one of the FAQs is what's the data we need to collect and measure in order to make sure the customer experience is at an acceptable level. And then the next one is, what are we doing to measure that? So you have to build a lot of that because it gives you useful information about how to react quickly right after something launches. Because the last thing you want is a false negative where, oh, yeah, it just didn't really stick. We thought it was a great idea when it was a great idea. It's just that the execution was a little sloppy and it was a poor customer experience and they liked the idea, but they just didn't like the service. It was too slow or too many errors and you didn't notice that, but you just saw they tried it. They didn't try it again, and it didn't generate any revenue. Let's move on to something else. So you said in the beginning, AWS, it was more important to track the controllable input metrics or like the metrics that reflected the customer experience. At some point, AWS must have been significant enough to include into the corporate level WBR on Wednesdays, right? And I'm sure this must be true for other business lines as well. At what point do you decide, okay, we need to start bringing it into the corporate level WBR and have other leaders be aware of this? Well, I think you just need to step back and ask. It's inexpensive meetings, and you're already using 60 minutes. So you either have to extend the meeting or take something out and say, we'll look at this at a departmental level before you elevate something. So you just have to ask, is this an appropriate use of time? Eventually, AWS and the retail business were different enough that they weren't related. So part of the benefit of a WBR is you get to see how everything is connected. You get to see how labor planning in the fulfillment centers impacts revenue versus storms in the northeast or whatever you want to talk about because businesses have a lot of data that needs to come together but aws and the retail business were separate enough that there wasn't really a crossover so it didn't make sense to have that top people focused on aws sitting Mm. in the retail wbr vice versa so you just have to ask yourself and there's more than one wbr for a large company yeah that makes sense You once told me, and this was a bit difficult for me to wrap my head around, that you didn't like surveys and focus groups to tell you what to do. You believe in developing this deep, qualitative understanding of the customer first, and then developing a hypothesis and verifying with data, instead of trying to look at the data to tell you something about the customer. Could you talk a bit more about that, like explain that a bit? Sure. Well, I did not say that I don't like surveys. Okay. (laughs) It was more that surveys, I typically do not like relying on those as the primary source of research and ideas for a number of reasons. One is the questions heavily skew the results, how you ask them, the type of questions, number questions, what you don't ask them, what's not on the survey. So surveys can be a useful tool, and particularly in validating or disproving 
hypotheses that you already have. <clears throat> Premier research about how big markets are, that's important too. So research is important. And actually one of the biggest reasons why ideas don't get implemented at Amazon is that the TAM, the total addressable market, just isn't big enough to move the needle. So research is important, but the bulk of the inspiration for new ideas really comes from within the team and by knowing the customer. And a lot of it is, well, if I were a customer, would I like this myself? But it's also looking at the customer data that comes in, qualitative and quantitative, by the way. What are customers saying? What are they writing in customer service about? I would often participate in the customer forums and chats when you get a lot of good information there. So you want to have just a constant stream. And the WBR is another input of information about what are our customers experiencing? Where are the pain points and how can I fix them? And that's where you get a lot of the inspiration. So if you were to take a look at the innovation for, again, let's just focus on Amazon's retail business. Amazon's famous for the flywheel, which is a concept we got from Jim Collins. Glad he came out and talked to us and helped Amazon create a flywheel. The bulk of the innovation for the retail business is about spinning that flywheel faster. And you don't need a survey to say, Do you like stuff delivered faster or do you like more expensive products or cheaper products? And you can deliver a lot of those things that care about. If you were to survey someone and say, do you want a hockey puck in your kitchen that you can talk to and order things and ask what the weather is, they may say no. So I give a good chunk of people, no, I don't need that. But once as you start to intuit, like what would help improve customers' lives, sometimes they don't really know they need it until it's offered. And that is where some of the magic happens when you see some either features or products that a company, Apple, Amazon, creating like, I never knew I really needed this. This is so cool. And that doesn't happen by accident, by the way. There's a lot of discussion and debate behind those things about what is the core customer problem that we are trying to solve? Is it a worthy problem to solve? And is this the right solution to solve that problem? Those are simple questions that can have very complex answers. All right. So there's like 10 minutes left. So I want to take a step back from the WBR and ask more general questions. First general question. In your view, what makes for a good operator? You know, it comes down to what I mentioned earlier, pride in operational excellence, which is getting the little things right. And most operators I've seen, they have an astonishingly deep grasp of what's happening in their area. One of the encouraging things that I learned at Amazon is that being a good operator, it's a teachable skill. You can't teach someone to be taller or smarter, or you can't generally tell people to just work harder because they're usually working pretty hard already. But you can teach someone how to be a good operator by using some of these tools, by how are you spending your time, what data are you looking at, are you making data-driven decisions, or are you making a lot of your decisions based on intuition versus data? So being a good operator is a teachable skill, but it's really knowing all of the little details about everything that's going on in terms of your business and having a good data-driven grasp about your customers too. You teach your clients today something called operating cadence. Could you talk about what that is? Yeah, operating cadence is basically the set of rituals or processes that a company has to do the important pieces of work for the company. So it can be anywhere from how do you consistently hire in a reliable and high quality manner. It can also be how do we get all the data we need in an unbiased format 
and circulate it to the right people in the company to make the right decisions. Things like annual planning, that falls into an operating cadence or quarterly planning if you want to do it then. Like how do you plan? What data do you use? How do you set the stake in the ground? And then what are the control processes after that to say, okay, how are we doing according to plan? Those are things like your monthly business reviews or quarterly business reviews. And do we need to course correct or do we just need to fix what's not working well or course correcting is changing course a bit or is everything going well? We just need to continue what we're doing. So a lot of that happens to fall under operating cadence. And another one that is, by the way, most companies have a lot more ideas than they have the ability and resources to implement. So do you have a formal named process that you can use to take ideas Pick the best ones, refine them, and make sure you're working on the best and only the best ideas that you think are possible. So you want to have processes for all of those. And Amazon, we created processes for all of those areas that I talked about. And there are other ones that other companies use too. But you you have to have an operating cadence if you want to scale and have it be a large, repeatable, and scalable process throughout the company. If you could magically wave a magic wand and tomorrow business operators all across the country wake up with one concept that they understand deeply. If you could have that wish granted, what would that be? That they would be able to understand and put it to practice. (laughs) I mean, this was something we learned the hard way is that just facing the brutal truth that you can't meaningfully change your output metrics, directly control your output metrics over the long haul. You can forecast them and predict where they're going, but to control them is a different story. And that it's really embracing that input metrics, understanding what fundamentally drives your business to achieve the outcomes and spending the bulk of your time and energy managing those things. That would be one thing I think would help a lot of companies. And yes, that would be... That's my wish for today. (laughs) Tomorrow may be something different. That's a good one. You spend a lot of your time in this podcast and in various conversations that I've had with you as well, talking about the lessons that you've learned in Amazon. But I've not really heard or asked you actually about lessons you've learned after your time in Amazon. So is there any like business or life lessons that you wish you'd known that you could go back in time and tell yourself when you were younger, maybe in the early days when you were just starting out in Amazon? Well, I mean, I learned how to be a good operator at Amazon. I would not say I was a particular effective one going into Amazon. I had a lot of great mentors. But if there's one, I maybe twist it around a bit in terms of piece of advice. I've always placed a big importance on who I'm working with. Am I learning a lot? Are they challenging me to be someone even better than I thought I can be? And am I making a big impact on whatever the particular domain is to my customer set? I would always look at those things. And sometimes you end up in an area, well, like, why are you going here? Like when I went over into affiliate marketing, it was a new thing with network effects. And I liked the people on that team. It wasn't the core retail business, but I learned a lot from that and got to take on a lot more than I probably normally would have if I went somewhere else in terms of the well-established business. But just know what really drives you, what gets you up every day and excited and fulfilled. And what I mentioned, that's for me. Other people have different things, but really truly being honest with yourself about what is fulfilling in terms of my career and then how can I go seek out those opportunities. That's the one thing that where when I found them was the most happy and is that I put some time and effort beforehand thinking about what my next move is going to be. 
and that way it got rid of some of the recency bias. Something came up, or I really like this person I just talked to, so maybe I'll go try this. So that's one thing I would say that I've learned and applied, and I probably wish I applied a little bit more. Right. Do you think a lot of the things that we talked about today, a lot of the lessons that you've learned, applies to early stage startups as well? Given that a lot of these processes sound like they belong in a larger company with more established businesses, would you say that people who are in smaller companies, everything's sort of chaotic, process control, what process control, right? Are these applicable at all? Yeah, so some of the processes you don't need when you've got five people and you're really trying to find whatever your product market fit. But one thing that should start from the very first person in the company really is the obsession over the customer. Mm -hmm. And if you're obsessed over providing a customer experience, you do have to measure it. (laughs) Because one, it'll help you probably achieve product market fit faster because you'll know what you've delivered and why it's either working or not working. In general, you want to increase your rate of experimentation per unit time, but you also have to learn from each of these experiments. So just doing experiments really fast is not enough. You have to do them fast and get the right information so you make the next experiment better. So I would posit that measuring the customer experience and knowing what are the true drivers of what you're doing is pretty darn important even for an early stage business. All right. Well, we're at time. Thank you very much for the time that you spent answering my questions and the time you spent with me teaching me about the WBR as well. If people want to find you online, where can they go? Just workingbackwards.com. All one word, That's everything's there that you'll need if you're looking right. for us. And if you're listening to this, I highly recommend Working Backwards, the book. It is well worth a read. I've read it multiple times at this point. And Colin, thank you. Well, thank you, Cedric. It's a pleasure talking with you today.